0: Hi, this is Chris Stewart from Oasis Church in Athens, Ohio. Normally, this podcast is where we would post the teaching from the previous Sunday's message in our worship service that meets in the Athens Middle School. However, during this particular time in our nation's history, when everyone is doing their part to lessen the threat of the COVID-19 coronavirus. Our church is also making sure that every member is physically distancing themselves from one another. And in order to do that, we're setting up Facebook Live church services from my living room, in fact. And what we're doing with this podcast during this time is pulling the audio from the sermons on those Facebook Live messages so that you can still have your weekly podcast feed if you like to listen to those separately. We don't know how long this will last, but as long as it does, we'll keep posting these, and we hope that you enjoy them. We hope that you're fed and well-nourished while you're at home, and by all means, please reach out to us on Facebook or Twitter or send us an email at oasisathens at gmail.com. If there's anything that you need, if you have any questions, We want to continue to serve and minister to the needs of our community, even during a time where it makes it difficult to do that in person. May God bless you today, and we hope you enjoy this message from Oasis Church in Athens, Ohio. You know, if you had told me about nine weeks ago that we were going to have church services solely on the internet, <laughs> uh, solely online, Facebook Live, YouTube. I would have said, Nah, no way, no way. Maybe a couple weeks, but nine weeks is a lot. It's a lot of. T- it's a that's a lot of weeks in a row of not being able to see our brothers and sisters in Christ that we are so used to seeing and, and fellowshipping fellowshiping with and worshiping with. And though we have expressed many times over the past eight weeks, uh, the reality of being able to be the church uh, when we're scattered from one another, just like the, the church in Acts was scattered for a time period. They weren't able to, to meet publicly, and so they were huddled together in homes and doing, I like to think, maybe doing a lot of the things that we've been doing. And uh, uh, even though we have expressed that that's, that's possible for you to just be with your family and be the church, it's, it's not ideal, and it certainly is not—I don't I don't believe it's what God intended. In fact, if I did believe that, then I wouldn't be an advocate for having uh, gathered church meetings and congregations of people together on a weekly basis. And so I am a huge advocate of that, and I certainly have been praying that we will be able to get back together soon. And I believe that those prayers— are, uh, are going to be coming to fruition really soon. Uh, I think that we'll be able to, to have church together again. What that's going to look like and where it's going to be is still a question, but uh, we're praying that perhaps even in a week or two we'll be able to, uh, to do something. And so keep your eyes out for that and keep your ears open and, and keep checking your emails and we'll, co- we'll communicate with you in all the ways that we normally do. Uh, but like I said in one of the earlier videos, we probably will still continue to do live streaming of our church services because we have been able to reach out and connect with people that do not live in our area, and they've told us that they would really enjoy being able to continue fellowshipping with us online, and that's a cool thing that I'm I'm really excited about. You know, today I have showed up on this video a couple of different times. Um, you know, I, I and I didn't intend to to to. Talk as long as I did in the introduction about Mother's Day, and uh, and also when I spoke um, just a little bit ago about communion. But those are both, I think, important messages, important things for us to to share today. And so, what I'd like to do during the time that's normally reserved for the sermon is just is just to give you a, a brief. Um, some some brief thoughts and insight that I was able to share earlier this past week with the Athletes in Action group in a Zoom meeting uh, with the Ohio Uni- hosted by the Ohio University Athletes in Action, and then yeah, I, I, other people were invited from from around the country and. Uh, And that that, uh, section of scripture that I shared with them on Monday night was from James chapter one. And so if you have a Bible with you right now, get it out and look at James chapter one. I'm going to read just three verses in James chapter one, beginning with verse two. Now, before I do that, I want to say this, James, we know James was the brother of Jesus. He was actually Jesus's little brother. And what, what that means is that he got to see Jesus learn and he got to see Jesus grow and he got to see Jesus. Jesus, do all kinds of stuff like resist temptation and all the things that aren't recorded for us in the scriptures because we don't have all of that record of Jesus's life growing up. We have a couple of stories, but, but we know that because they were brothers and they grew up in the same household... That, that James got a chance to see Jesus in that way. And so it's a really cool thing to consider whenever we're reading James's letter in the scriptures. James learned from his big brother, Jesus, and then James became a pastor and he became an author of the Bible. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, James is going to be able to teach us today as a first-hand knowledge person of what he learned from Jesus. And so listen to these words, because they're vitally important for us, especially today, especially in today's time and circumstance. I think if we were to put a title on what we're about to read here in the the gospel or in the book of James, um, chapter one, it would be that life is sometimes wonderful, sometimes painful. Let's listen to these words. James says, Consider it great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, there's a lot of things that James is saying right here in this little section of verses, but there are also some things I believe that he's not saying, and there are things that I think that we sometimes feel whenever we are going through a trial. We've been going through a trial for some time now, and some of you have been going through different trials, additional trials, you know, in on stacked on top of the COVID nineteen trial. I mean that's been a that's a big enough trial in and of itself. But some of you have had other issues and things that you're dealing with and I understand that and 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 it's it's they're unavoidable in many cases. And so when we're going through these trials, we can sometimes feel more than we think. And what I mean by that is we sometimes interpret more about the trial than what is actually happening. And we do need to feel what we're feeling, of course we do, but we also need to think about what God is saying whenever we go through a trial, because the Bible actually has a lot to say about trials and sufferings and how we ought to perceive those things. And so before I take a minute and talk about what James is saying in this section of Scripture, I want to give you a handful of things that I think he's not saying. And the first thing is this, he's not saying that when life is hard, God is punishing you. That's not what he's saying, even though it can feel like that. You're having a hard day. God must be punishing me. You look back on your life and you say to yourself, okay, what did I do to deserve this? You ever say that, right? I must have done something wrong. God's going to punish me or pay me back for the things that I've done wrong and or the things that I failed to do for him that I told him that I would do. And the truth is, that's not how God operates. And I can back that up with the totality of scripture and what the scripture, the gospel story tells us. To say that God is punishing us for something that we did is, in essence, a a sort of a belief in karma, a system of karma, which is just a farce. It's it's, 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 It's a myth. There is no such thing as karma, and God doesn't operate like that. And the reason why I can say that confidently is because when Jesus went to the cross, he took upon himself all of the sin of all of his people, and he suffered and he died in our place for our sin, and therefore, it would be unjust. For God to punish Jesus on the cross and also you. We know that we make bad choices. We know that that happens. And you know what's happening when you, often when you make a bad choice, we, we, we reap what we sow, right? That's sometimes what happens. But But God, we have to live with a lot of the the implications and complications of our own folly and our own failures. But please understand this, God is never punishing people for their sins. He's already punished Jesus, and we need to believe that today. You know, a second thing that James is not saying in this scripture is that God is failing you. You know, God, God does not fail his people even though sometimes it feels like that you know God you said that you love me God you said that you would provide for me god you said that you would protect me and I just lost my job god you you said that you would you would keep us from you know free I mean God god you there are promises that you've given and I've not seen these promises come true in my life and therefore you must be failing me sometimes we don't say it but we might feel it in fact I would I would guess that a lot of us, or all of us, at some point in time have felt like God has failed us. If you have gone through, or maybe you're in a season right now where you feel like God is failing, understand this. God just simply may not be finished in what He's doing in you right now. He might not be done with you, but He's not failing you. You see, God is not without power, and He's not without a plan. Everything that we see in His Word is that He has purpose for for things that happen in your life. He has a plan, and sometimes when you're hurting, you can't see what that is. Sometimes we can't even imagine the possibility of there being a positive outcome or a plan that's happening when we're going through something that is very difficult But in those moments, what we need to work on is our trusting. That's what faith is. That's essentially what faith is. And this thing that we have in Christianity is called a faith. And so please understand, God is not failing you. He's not failing you. Number three, when life is hard, it does not say that God is abandoning you. I know it's easy sometimes to believe that God is really near to us when times are good. When things are going well, it's easy to, to 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 recognize, wow, you know, God, God is God is God is good. God is God is good all the time, right? But then, when things get hard, it feels like He's really far away. Sometimes, when things get hard, we tend to draw closer to God. We tend to to seek after Him more often than when times are bad, or when times when times are good. But when times are bad, sometimes it feels like. God is far away and he's unreachable. Jesus says in his word in, in the gospels, I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I will be with you always. That's one of the last things he tells his disciples before he ascended to heaven. He, he, and then he sends his Holy Spirit so that his presence and his power, the power and the presence of God would be available to us at all times In the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, God has not abandoned you. God is a Father who looks at you and says, I'm I'm with you always. So know that and hold strong to that. That's not what James is saying when he's talking about trials. And, And a fourth thing is this he's not saying that God is going to make things better, that's not what he's saying. You know, a lot of people, unfortunately, have what I'd call a greeting card Christianity more than a biblical Christianity. And that greeting card Christianity is one that says, hey, you know, things are hard now, but it's going to be great. You just wait. Just, just, just persevere. Just wait. It's going to be great. Okay, let me ask you a question. How many of you have been waiting for a while? How many of you have been like, okay, uh, God, I've been waiting for a long time when's it going to get better? Truth is, never will you find in the scripture God promising that things will change for the better. But here's what you can find. God does promise that you can change. God doesn't promise, well, you know what? Life is hard. Just wait. It'll get better. Sometimes it might not get better. But through those difficult times and through this difficult time that you might be going through right now, God is changing you. And if you would pause for a moment to consider that, the ways that he is molding and shaping you, it might bring you to a place of praise and gratitude. And the last thing I'll say about what James is not saying is this. He's not saying that God's going to answer all of our questions, and that's just not that never happens, does it? When life gets hard and we have trials and we have difficult times, we want all of our questions answered. We we sometimes make a list, don't we? You know, I've got questions. How come? Why? You know, where? When? I don't understand this. Please help me reconcile this in my mind, God. Please help me clarify it. I need to be able to see. And God says in his word that we live by faith and not by sight. God says, Look to me. Don't look to the answers. And that's hard. That is sometimes really hard because we're people who always want answers, right? We want answers. That's what we want. We demand answers, right? So please understand this. When we read about trials and suffering in the Bible, there are things that the the writer is saying, and then there are things the writer is not saying. He's not saying when life is hard, God is punishing you. He's not saying that when life is hard, God is failing you. He's not saying that when life is hard, God is abandoning you. And he's not saying that God is going to fix it all for you or that he is going to give you an answer. So then what is, he, what, what is he saying then? Okay, Chris, thanks for that. What is he saying? Well, let me, let, me, let me answer that for you. Actually, let's let James answer that for us. What's the first thing he says in verse two? Consider it great joy. The ESV says, count it all joy. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith is going to produce this thing called endurance. Endurance. So when trials come, he says, oh, wait, there's a a good word. When trials, do you hear what I said? When trials come. Not if. I mean, most of us are hoping that it would say if, right? When you you read the scriptures and James says, hey, uh, uh, because he says, look, in verse two, consider a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. He doesn't say if there, does he? He says whenever. And that is an important thing to pause to think about because what are the odds that you're going to have a trial? 100%. You're going to get trials. And so here's the point. Don't be shocked by it. Oh my gosh, a trial came. Oh my gosh, I'm in pain. I'm suffering. Christianity must not be working for me. No, it's working. In fact, James begins his whole book right there. This is chapter one, verse two. And verse one is simply his greeting saying, hi, my name's James. Verse two, when you get trials, it's gonna happen. It's gonna happen. Here's a second thing that James is saying. When trials come, you can know this because you know, verse three, because you know that the testing of your faith What do you know when a trial comes? What can you know about it? Here's what you can know. It's a test. It's a test. How many of you have taken a test? If you're a college student and you're watching, you've taken plenty, right? We've all taken tests. What happens when we have tests to take? Hopefully, we prepare for them. Because what? We know they're coming, right? We know they're coming. Not if, when. And so what do we do? We prepare. We prepare our minds. We we do everything we can to to try to get ourselves ready so that on the day when the test comes, we cannot be surprised by it, but we'll know how to respond. And we take that test and we, 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 we pass it or fail it depending on our preparation. Am I right? Look, life is a test. In fact, life is full of tests, spiritual tests. A trial is a test. Look at it that way. That's what it is. That it's an opportunity. When you have a test, what's a a test provide for you as a person? It provides you an opportunity to do what? To prove who you are. When you get a test, don't look at it as an attack. So many of us look at trials and suffering as attacks. That's not what they are. Redefine what a trial is in your mind. Because a trial is a test. And a test is an opportunity for you to prove who you are in Christ. Finally, one last thing that James says a trial is, or the one thing he says about a trial, and that is this: he says the word "various," various kinds, or when you, when you you experience various trials, or in the ESV, trials of various kinds. We know that about trials, don't we? They're various. They're financial. They're emotional. Spiritual, physical, mental, relational, marital, vocational, various kinds. And you know what this means? Here's here's what this means. It means you don't know where it's going to come from next. It could come from anywhere. Just when you thought this trial was over, you get another one. And they don't always come one at a time. Sometimes they pile on top of one another. Have you noticed that? Yeah, of course you have. Of course you have. Well, I need to wrap this up because I said I was going to be brief, and I talked about having three mini-messages, but this has turned out to be a full-fledged message. So. <laughs> so the last thing I want to say about the trials is the very first thing that James says in verse 2 because he says that they're producing something for us in verse 3. He says that trials produced endurance. They produce endurance in our lives, and then endurance, when it becomes complete, as, we can, as the more endurance we, we build, it causes us to be what? Verse 4, mature. It builds maturity. Some translations say steadfastness, that we, we build the steadfastness, the ability to mature. And to be uh, uh, to, to have endurance, and endurance produces maturity. And so James says, "Okay, trials will come. We need to know that they're a test, and we should we should we shouldn't compare them you know, our trials to others. We ultimately need to have a perspective that we're going to grow through our trials." And because trials are going to produce endurance and they're going to produce maturity. And so he says, receive it. If you receive a trial as a test and an opportunity, it's going to produce in you endurance and ultimately result in maturity. So therefore, knowing all of this, not being surprised by all of this, how should we view a trial? He says, count it all joy. Found it all joy. Consider it all joy. In fact, in doing so, you're going to become more like Jesus. That's an interesting thing to consider, right? How many of you, let me ask you a question. How many of you want to be more like Jesus? Raise your hand right there in your living room, wherever you're at. I'm going to guess that a lot of you watching this are raising. In fact, if you're still watching this now, you're probably raising your hand about that. If not, I mean, people who don't want to be more like Jesus probably just came across it, maybe watched a couple songs. They maybe recognized, oh, yeah, that's Brock playing a guitar. And, and then, you know, watched for a few minutes and turned it off. But if you're still watching now, toward the end of this thing, then I'm guessing that you probably want to be more like Jesus. Okay, that's great. Second question, how many of you want a trial? Might be a little slower to raise your hand. Just so you know, those are the same question. They're the same question. You can't have one without the other. So many people want that though, don't they? I mean, you ever met anybody that really wants to be strong without working out? <laughs> How about being you want to be really smart without reading books? Not going to happen. Just doesn't work that way. Cause effect. It's a reality in our lives. You reap what you sow. Endurance produces maturity. How do we get endurance? by going through the trials. Look, the reason why so many people in this world are immature answers right in the Scripture. The reason why so many people in this world are immature is because they have no endurance. Every time a trial has come, they either ran for it, ran from it, someone bailed them out, or they turned to something to numb it or helped them to escape it. And that's just the reality. What does that produce? It produces immaturity. But James says... That the full effect of endurance is to help to make you complete. And what he means by that is, if you're, when you're complete, you're, you're mature. Paul says it like this in Romans 5, that perseverance produces what? Character. It's the same thing that James is saying. And so go back to that very first word. If, 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 if we understand what a trial is producing in us, then you can count it all Joy, count it all joy. You can do that. I know it's. I know that's a phrase that sometimes religious people use, and it makes you want to smack them, right? Box their ears or something. You know, religious people have a way of using certain phrases that (laughs) that that just kind of like fingernails on a chalkboard to me. Hey, count it all joy, brother. You know, it's like being a cheerleader, right? You became a Christian, you get some Jesus pom poms, and you go, hey, count it all joy, count it all joy, and it's like oh, we're supposed to walk around and you know, I got hit by a car. Hey, count it all joy. At least it wasn't a bus, right? Things like that. So, is, is that what he means when he says count it all joy? You know, when you count your, consider your trials joy. No, it's not. It's not. It's not. What does it mean then? Here's what I think it means. Christians will tell you that there's a difference between joy and happiness. And I firmly believe that. In fact, I talk about this a lot. I I actually wrote about this. I wrote an entire chapter about this in my second book called The Coaching Life. It's the very last chapter in the book. Joy is so much deeper. And it's something that I believe that you can only experience when you know Christ. Some people call joy, some people call what is actually happiness joy but they lose their joy whenever the circumstances are bad. That's not joy. That's what happiness is. That's the difference. Happiness is based on your circumstances. Happiness is is because of circumstances. So let's say we all wake up tomorrow morning, and on the national news, we're told, hey, you know what? This virus is gone. It's ended. We can all go back to work. Kids can go back to school. Moms and dads be like, party time, right? <laughs> yeah. We can go back to sports. We'd be all we'd all be like, "Yes, happy, happy. Happiness would ensue everywhere." And the reason why is because happiness is connected to circumstances. We've not seen a lot of happiness in the world today. Why? Well, because circumstances are bad. Look, I'm not against happy. I'm all for happy. Get happy as often as you can, right? That's great. Nothing wrong with happy at all. But what happens when you're when you don't have happiness? What happens when there is no happy? Nothing to be happy about. I mean, what happens when it's the opposite? What happens when the doctor looks at you and says, hey, you're not better. You're actually worse. What happens instead of getting a raise, you get fired or laid off? What happens then? What do you do? You see, that's where joy, true joy comes in. Everyone can have happiness, but joy, real joy, is something that not everyone understands. I really believe that, and here's why. It's because joy is not in any way connected to your circumstances. In fact, joy is in spite of your circumstances. That's the difference. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews about Jesus, it says, For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Look, I can't think of anything less happy than crucifixion. But Jesus counted it, considered it, endured it with joy. That certainly isn't happiness. There's nothing happy about it. I mean, that's, there wasn't anything happy about, about that whatsoever. Happiness, and the reason why is because happiness is based on your circumstances. Those were bad circumstances. But the reason why he could endure it with joy is because he had a bigger perspective. Joy is in spite of your circumstances. Joy consumes your entire life. And there are people who live with joy, and when they do, other people in the world can't figure it out. They look at you and they say, how can you be this way when you have no certainty about your life or what? What's going to happen next? And the answer is simply this. It's one word. It's one person. And that is Jesus. It's Jesus. That's what James says. It doesn't matter what your circumstance is. You can consider it great joy. And you know where he learned that? He learned it from his brother, Jesus. Jesus had joy even when he didn't have happiness. So, trials have come. And they're going to continue to come. They're tests. They're opportunities for you to grow. They're opportunities for you to endure and mature. And you can rejoice, not in the circumstance, but you can rejoice in the Lord who is going to change you in that circumstance to become more like Jesus. I want to pray with you. And we're going to sing one more song together before we end today's service. God, we come now asking that you would help us to be more like Jesus, God. And we know that the only way that that's going to happen is if we endure the various trials that come into our lives. God, we don't have to want trials. We're not, we're not crazy. We don't want them. But we, we, we understand that they are going to come. And so when they come, we look to you to help us to endure so that we can become mature. And we know that as that is happening, God, we can do it with joy. Because that is happening, we can face it with joy. And that's my prayer today is that we'll be able to walk out from this service wherever we go, outside, or maybe we're stuck inside because of the weather, or whatever it is that we do, we're able to go with joy. If there's anyone who's been watching this right now that doesn't know that joy because they don't know Jesus, they don't, they've never put faith in Christ, my prayer is that you would speak right through these little computers and right through this online system and that your Holy Spirit, who is not bound by any of that, will meet them right where they are and cause them to pray, God, I need you. Would you come and save me? Would you come and live in my heart like I know you're living in so many many hearts of the people that I work with, people in my neighborhood? I may not have all the answers. I may not know all the answers to to all the questions. I, I didn't go to Sunday school, and I don't know the Bible stories. I don't even have a Bible, perhaps, but that's okay. It's okay. You're hearing the gospel now. If Christ is meeting you now, reach out to him now and invite him to come in and save you. God, we love you. We thank you for what you've done, what you are doing, and what you're going to continue to do through this entire circumstance. And we pray this with joy. In Jesus' name. Amen. There's something I'd like to talk with you about uh, just for a few minutes that we haven't really spent much time with or any time at all, I don't think, discussing on these online worship services. And I think it's because when we are uh, in this mode of being scattered away from one another, we're kind of out of our element and we're away from a lot of those regular practices that, that really sort of become routine, and um, really, it, it's kind of, they become religious, really, to be honest. And uh, one of those practices that, I, that, I, that I'm referring to here is Holy Communion, uh, or the Lord's Supper, known in uh, some churches as the Lord's Table or the Eucharist. It's a source of, of uh, actually, you know, unfortunately, it's a source of, of significant disagreement within the church in terms of, you know, how how uh, how it's to be done what it means what's actually happening when we take it how often it should be done what should be taken and things like that um but the things that are agreed upon are clearly given to us in scripture and there's not a lot that's given to us in scripture about this but there are things that are that are agreed upon that whenever we see it in scripture we we have no uh, recourse except for to agree and to obey and uh, and that is this that Communion was something that was instituted by Jesus during His Last Supper with His disciples. And during that time, He served them bread and the cup. And that cup, as we know, was wine. And He told them that these elements were significant because they represented His body and His blood. This is in Matthew chapter 26. You can also find it in Mark chapter 14. And he also instructed them to repeat this ceremony of remembrance of him. And you can find that in Luke chapter 22. Now the disagreements over Holy Communion stem from many different questions. You know, was Jesus speaking of his body and blood figuratively or was he speaking of it literally? This is where you get the differences between the Protestant Church and the Catholic Church in terms of what they believe you are actually putting into your mouth. does that actually become Jesus' body and blood is the question. Uh, were his words mystical or were they, were they a combination of, of, of both, f- figurative or literal? How often is the church supposed to observe communion? Um, is the Eucharist a means of grace or is it just simply a, a memoriam of, of Christ, a memorial? Uh, what was in the cup during the first communion, was it unfermented or fermented wine? Believe it or not, people argue about that. Um, Because Jesus didn't give us specific step-by-step instructions regarding the ritual of communion, naturally, there's going to be conflict throughout church history about the hows and the where's and the when's and what exactly the bread and the wine represent. But as a local church, I want to make this very clear. We understand that we are saved by grace through faith apart from any works of our own. This is very clear in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9. And we consider Jesus's words concerning the elements of communion to be figurative, meaning that we focus on the beauty of what he accomplished for us in the new covenant that was brought into effect by his actual blood. And we remember that sacrifice as often as we partake of the Lord's supper, the Lord's table, the Holy Communion. And we look forward to once again sharing in this cup with Christ in the kingdom of God. As he says that as often as we, as often as we take this cup, as we, often as we have this meal that we call the Lord's Supper, we ought to do it in remembrance of him. So there's a purpose behind it. And he said that you will do this until I return. And then after he returns, we won't do that the same way anymore, but we'll have that banquet feast with him in heaven. So that brings me to this particular dilemma And that is many people are wondering, and I've had a few questions about how are we to take communion while we're at home during this time of quarantine and isolation from one another? So, I just want to share a few words about that. And I, I want to begin with just a real brief overview of communion, what the Lord's Supper is actually intended to be. Just a few points. So, the purpose of communion is this it's to commemorate the death of Christ. Very simply, He says, Do this in remembrance of me. And so, it's a commemoration of His death. It's also to signify and it's to seal and to apply to all of those who are believers, you and me, if you're a believer in Christ, the benefits of the new covenant. What I mean by that is this ordinance of communion with Christ, it endorses his promises to his people. And we, his people, we take this very seriously and we devote ourselves to Jesus and to his service. And that's something that we ought to be remembering every time we take communion. Also, the you know, when you take communion, it's actually like a an out a badge of Christian profession of faith. There are two ordinances that we observe as a as a as a badge of professing that we are Christians. Baptism is one, and communion is the other. Those are really the only two ordinances that we, as a as a local church, and really as a Protestant church, that that we that we uh, observe. And those are outward expressions. Both of those are outward expressions that someone is a Christian. And then the last thing I'll say is that it represents a mutual communion that we have with other believers. Uh, that we have in common with the fellowship of believers. So the whole concept, if you think about it, of communing with one another and having communion is a it's, it's community experience. And so we recognize the bond that the body of Christ, interestingly enough, Jesus calls the church his body, and part of the communion is actually remembering his body. So what do we remember when we take that? Yeah, we remember Christ's body broken for us, but we also remember that we are now today We are His body expressed in 2020 in this world right now. So we remember that as we take communion as well. So it's multifaceted whenever we take it. And so the elements that we use to represent Christ's body and blood are, as I mentioned before, bread and wine. The kind of bread, whether it's leavened or unleavened, it's actually not specified in scripture. Jesus did use unleavened bread when he sat down with his disciples in that first communion. And the reason why it was unleavened is because it was during the holy, the Passover time. It was at the Passover table and that was the the bread that the Jews had during Passover. And, and so it doesn't really necessarily matter if you, if you don't have any unleavened bread and you want to take communion. That's okay. It doesn't have to be unleavened. And then the the second thing is uh, that the second element is wine. And Jesus talks about this uh, that this, this cup, it, the, the wine represents uh, the, the redness of his blood as you see it visually um, that was shed for us that became the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And so the last question that I'll, I'll um, address and then I'm going to pray a communion prayer for you and encourage you to take some time today and observe communion in, in this very symbolic way is the question of how often should we observe it? And if we've been in sin because we haven't observed it uh, every week here during the uh, um, the online isolated Sundays, and the answer to that is no. We of course have not been in sin if you haven't observed it every week. The Bible doesn't provide a prescription for how often you should take communion. Jesus simply said, "As often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. Whenever you eat this bread and take this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes." And so, there's no prescription of how often you should do it. It would seem that since you know, since we take the Lord's supper to remember the death of Christ that we ought to do it fairly often. Some churches choose to do it monthly um, in a special service. Some churches do it bi-monthly and have a big, you know, a big, you know, they take the, they dedicate the entire service to it, and that's kind of a cool thing. Other churches and traditions do it weekly. And, and that's what, all of those are okay, they really are. There's liberty in that. Since the Bible doesn't give specific instruction as to the frequency, there is always latitude and freedom in how often a church might observe the Lord's Supper. In my personal opinion, it ought to be done often enough to renew our focus on Christ whenever we need to do that. However, it probably shouldn't be so often that it becomes a religious routine that ends up causing us to do it without taking it seriously and pausing to observe all of its purposes that we've talked about here in the last few minutes. And, and you know, I'll be honest with you, I grew up in a church that took it every week, and that happened to me. And so when we first planted Oasis, we actually chose not to do it every week, but to have special services, you know, and, and dedicate it to that maybe once a month. But then we, we went back to uh, once a week because we just felt like doing it as often as we got together. And so we regularly now take communion once a week. But understand that if your ch- particular church does not, that's okay. That's okay. Uh, the frequency is not what matters as much as the heart and the attitude of those that participate in it as often as you do participate in it Um, we ought to partake with reverence with love with a deep sense of gratitude for the lord jesus and with a deep sense of grace for others when jesus unrecognizing that jesus was willing to die on the cross to take upon himself our sins and the sins of our brothers and sisters that are partaking of it with us and so I just want to pray right now for you. I want to encourage you to take some time today and to just break bread and to drink wine. If you prefer to drink it without alcohol, it's perfectly fine. If you want to use grape juice or some unfermented un- un- wine, that's absolutely fine. And it's, absolutely, it's also fine to use regular wine as well. But I, if you would, I want you to join me in this, this prayer, okay? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come right now before you in humility and we ask that you would examine our hearts God examine my heart show me anything that's not pleasing to you right now reveal inside of me pride secret pride pride that maybe I can't see unconfessed sin any rebellion or unforgiveness that might still be in my heart and hindering my relationship with you I know that I'm your child. I know that I've received you into my heart and in my life. I've accepted your death on the cross as the penalty for my sins. And the price that you paid has covered all of that for me for all time. And so I desire to live for you now. and I recognize that as I come to you to commune with you today. And God, as we take bread that represents your life that was broken for for us, we remember it and we celebrate your faithfulness to us and we receive it with joy. Thank you, Jesus, for what you did. And we also remember the body of Christ that is with us in fellowship here today in this this time and place. And we're thankful for the body of Christ today. And God, in the same way we take the bread, we also take the cup that represents your blood that has been poured out on the cross we realize that you were the ultimate and supreme and only sacrifice that's available for our sins, past, present, and future. And because of that blood that you shed for us, God, we can be free of the power and the penalty both of sin. Thank you for that victory. Thank you for offering it to us. And so God, each time I take communion, whether that be today, whether it be tomorrow, whether it be next Sunday, whether it be a month from now, as often as I take it, I want to remember you and recommit my life and recommit my heart and my thoughts and my mind and everything back to you, God. Fill me today with the power of your spirit. Help me to hold fresh this remembrance of the story that never grows old. Help me to hold it so close to my heart, God. That's what communion is all about. That's why you gave us this, so that we'll never forget. We pray all this in Christ's name.